Hi, it's Father Rick, and I want to welcome you to St. Michael's Episcopal Church. I'm really glad you found us. Please know that we accept you wherever you are on your spiritual journey, and we trust that God will take you where you need to be, right in God's timing. We're just glad that you're here with us, and we hope you enjoy today's sermon. God bless. Oh God, you, you are here, Lord, and we are here. Lord, may we be conscious of your presence with us, and may we be here together. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Look at the, We got people here today. Isn't that nice? Everyone's looking good. All right, I um, wanted to begin with a story because I, I read the story of a young woman um, who was preparing her first Thanksgiving dinner, newlywed, preparing her first Thanksgiving dinner for she and her husband. And as she was getting things ready for Thanksgiving Day, she reminds herself um, to make sure that the night before she prepares the turkey that she leaves the turkey out in the, the sink and so that it can thaw overnight, right? And so she puts the turkey in the sink and she takes the dish rack that's typically in the sink and she places it over the top of the turkey. And um, her husband comes in to her and he says, well, what, what, what are you doing, sweetheart? Why, why are you putting that dish rack over the turkey? And she said, well, that's the way mom always did that to help the turkey thaw. And so the next day, the mom calls her, you know, to check in on her, see how everything's going with her first Thanksgiving dinner. She goes, man, mom, everything's going great. I have everything ready. The turkey's in the oven. She said, I even remembered to make sure to put the dish rack over the turkey last night before we went to bed. And her mom said, Sweetie, what are you talking about? She says, oh, that's the way you did it. I remember you always put the dish rack over the turkey when it was thawing, right? And her mom said, yes, honey, but we had cats. <laughs> Shaboom, boom. Well, here's the deal. As Christians, we have kind of our own cats and our own turkey ra or, uh, dish racks, don't we? I mean, uh, the, the way that mom did it, and daggone it, if mom did it, that's the way we're going to do it. Our liturgy, preaching styles, we deify one genre of music over another, right? We have our turkey, excuse me, our cats and our dish racks. I mean, we simply sometimes do things because that's the way we've always done it. And so if you're not doing the things the way we've always done it, you are wrong. That's just the way it is, right? And of course, if you're wrong, then guess what? I don't have to like you. <laughs> I can condemn you. In our gospel reading this week, Jesus confronts a group of devout religious people, uh, the Pharisees, accu who accuse his disciples of getting the religion wrong. 
Specifically, the Pharisees asked Jesus why some of his uh, followers eat without performing the ritual hand-washing expected of observant Jewish people to remain undefiled and holy before God. Now, keep in mind, this isn't like my mom used to make me go wash your hands before dinner, right? This is not necessarily about hygiene. This was actually about remaining undefiled and holy before God. They believed that defilement occurred when an observant Jew knowingly or unknowingly came in contact with something that they deemed unclean. Now, you've got to remember, these guys were living in Roman occupation, and Romans didn't practice the Jewish way and law. And so they wanted to attempt and, and to contain and codify what they believed was sacred. How can God's people best practice their religion among these surrounding pagans? Well, it's easy, simple. Create and maintain a purity culture. How can St. Michael's maintain right um, cleanliness and be an undefiled in a culture that is post-Christian? And all those people come in, they sit in your pews, they get your carpet dirty. How, no, that's a joke, right? But we kind of create these rules and these traditions and these rituals around what's clean and what's unclean. And that's what they were doing. Who's in, who's out? Who deserves God's favor and who doesn't? And they tried to set themselves apart as God's righteous and holy people. And they made themselves essentially the arbitrators of what is good and evil, what is sacred and profane. And in case you haven't ever heard of this before, you all read the book of Genesis? Y'all ever, you know, Genesis, right? You all know that story, what? You all heard that story about the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve and all that? Well, here's the deal. Um, the famous scene in the Garden of Evil was not about eating fruit. We can debate whether it was an apricot or an apple, and you got to get that one right, because if you don't get that right, then everything's wrong. No. It's about the temptation to claim divine authority and decide who is good and who is evil, what is good and what is evil. And that's exactly what they were doing. But Jesus, never one to mince words, calls it exactly what it is. Jesus rebukes these folks. And he quotes Isaiah. Jesus says to the people, look, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You abandon the commandment of God and hold to human tradition. In other words, their focus was all wrong. In focusing on human traditions and looking only at the outward appearance of things, they had failed to honor God. You know, I think I've shared this story before, but when I was in San Francisco, a seminarian, working in a church, and um, we did morning prayer every single morning. We did evening prayer every single evening, and we had the best liturgy in the whole city. I and mean, we did liturgy. Amazing. And if you didn't do it like us, of course, we rolled your eyes and saw you beneath us, right? Because you didn't do liturgy right. We chanted 
we chanted the whole service. We chanted the gospel. We did it all, man. And we were just outstanding. And one day I was having tea with the priest uh, on the terrace above the church. It was a Thursday, and it was about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and there was a buzzer. It went zzzz, and it meant somebody was down below on the street trying to get in. And so the priest, being a devout man, looks over the terrace balcony, and he looks down, and he says, Go away! We're closed! And then he looks at me and says, They just want money. Somewhere along the way, all of that prayer, all of that morning prayer, all that evening prayer, all of the best liturgy on the planet, right, did not do something to transform the heart in a way that was compassionate and loving. See, Jesus doesn't condemn ritual hand-washing in this story. Well, he doesn't argue that all religious traditions are evil. What he condemns is this judging of others, uh, uh, others' worthiness in the eyes of God by human rituals and human standards. Jesus condemns legalism. Uh, he condemns self-righteousness and this exclusivism that keeps the Pharisees from freely loving God and loving their neighbors. It seems that love of God and neighbors are really big deal for Jesus. And he claims that you can't really love God if you don't love your neighbor. That's crazy, isn't it? But that's Jesus because Jesus says man looks at outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. What's going on beneath the surface, right? Rumi, y'all know Rumi, who Rumi is, a 13th century, okay, poet. Well, he says, love sometimes wants to do us a great favor. I love this. Love sometimes wants to do us a great favor. Hold us upside down and shake out all the nonsense. And you know, I think that's what Jesus was doing. He was holding these people and their religiosity upside down and trying to shake the nonsense out of them. And that's a question for us. Does our version of religion and what is held sacred cause our hearts to open wide with compassion? Or does it cause our hearts to close? Does it lead people to feel loved and welcomed at God's table? Or does it make us small and stingy and suspicious and withholding and judgmental? If so, then Jesus, God in Christ, wants to take that love and hold us upside down and shake the nonsense out of us, right? See, we can do it right and still miss the point. I had a guy that my old uh, former parish, I should say, worked for the bishop. I hope he's watching today, actually. I, 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 I do. Because he got it all right always. I mean, he knew the Bible better than anyone in the church. He worked for the bishop, as a matter of fact. And so he had a little extra authority in his mind. But he said to me one day, you know, I don't like that prayer. And I was like, I don't really care whether you like it or not. We're not praying to you. We're praying to God. 
right but he in his mind had the right theology he in his mind had the right understanding of the Bible but that right theology and that right understanding didn't make him a very loving person it didn't make him very kind it didn't make me want to be near him in any way shape or form See, Jesus gives us this good news that it's what's inside us that really ultimately counts. It's what's inside us that defines us, that controls us, that affects how we treat one another. You know, I said, I will never be religious. I want nothing to do with the church or Christians because... I could never measure up to these standards that they had. And that's what I really believed. It wasn't until I came to realize that, guess what? I don't get these standards. I don't understand. I don't want to be around these people because they bring me down. It wasn't until someone began to talk to me about the love of God in Jesus. And that it wasn't about keeping the religious purity codes and getting those right, but it was about the love of God who was transforming my heart and wanted to give me life. That's when I started to pay attention. I could like Keith Richards and this Jesus guy also could love me. I didn't have to burn all my Rolling Stone records, you know what I mean? I mean, but that's what I thought back then. <laughs> See, it's what's in the, inside us that moves us toward God or encourage us to move away from God. It's on the inside that conversion happens. It's what's on the inside. It's on the inside that healing begins to take place place. We don't get the love of God in our hearts, in our souls, in our being, in the way we see one another by getting religion right, by never spilling a drop of wine on the altar or genuflecting the right way or whatever. We only get it right by God's profound love for us period there is nothing outside a person Jesus says that by going in that can defile that person but the thing that comes out or what defiles us he says for it is from within from within the human heart that evil intentions come see the things that Jesus describes in our reading which make us unholy are not the externals. It's not our skin color. It's not our denominational. It's not our class or our background or our nation or our origin. And it is definitely, America, not your political affiliation. Sorry. It's not what goes into our bodies. It's not the externals. It's not what we eat or drink or how we say our prayers or what hymns we sing or whether we genuflect this way or that way or whether we kneel or stand. Jesus says it's one thing and one thing only. It's what comes out of us. The attitudes that inspire us to treat God's creations as objects 
or is it to be used for power and pleasure and the benefit of ourselves? Jesus says that that's, that's what happens. He refused to accept that people were growing in their love of God in a way that did not translate into the love of people. Voila, there you have it, man. Pretty simple. But see, I can't love you. I cannot truly love you in, um, until I have allowed God to love me and those deeper places inside me. You know, they say, I've heard it said, someone said it, um, I don't know who, but we only love others to the extent that we've allowed God to love us. Isn't that true? You know, isn't that true? I mean, ultimately, I never can really truly love another person unless I've let God inside those places inside me. Those places I want to keep hidden from you. Those places, if you knew those places inside me, you would know that there's no way in the world that man should be a priest because he's so defiled. But it's in that place, in the wounds, in the unconscious, in the hurts, those places inside, that when I let the love of God in there, it begins to heal me. And when I begin to see myself as one who is truly loved, not because I get religion right, or I wear the right collar, or I stand in the pulpit when I preach, or I did it like Quig always did it, or Father Jones in 1957 did it, when I just simply let God do this work inside me, and I see myself as that love, am I able to love you? Rumi said this, again, different quote, look inside and find where a person loves from. That's reality, not what they say. You know, there's a lot of truth in that, isn't there? Jesus, God, in his great love, comes, not turn us upside down, I think, but to turn us right side up. Shake the nonsense out of us to shake out those things that prevent us from, from trying to control our environments and our worlds through religiosity and do it the right way. He wants to shake that nonsense out of us and fill us with his love. See, our actions actually matter. As our reading from James makes clear, he says, be doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. You know, I know people that can quote the Bible upside down, right? I said this last week, inside out, backwards and forwards, right and left. They know the scripture, but they don't really seem to know what it means. They haven't really allowed that word um, to creep inside them in such a way that's, that, that it transforms them into the likeness of Christ. Be doers of the word and not merely hearers and therefore deceive yourself. Religion that is pure and undefiled for God, before God, um, is this, to care for the orphans and the widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained 
by the world. See, I'll confess, it's easier for me, frankly, to chant the gospel, chant the Sursum Corda, to make sure that I genuflect, do this in remembrance of me, but I don't elevate to a, I can do all that. It's easier for me to get religion than it is for me to love another person, especially someone who is different. The gospel lays claim to something amazing, that the word, as we say every Christmas morning, that the word became flesh, that God entered into the world and became flesh. This says something about God that God isn't trying to keep a distance from us, that God isn't coming and just putting on all this religiosity on us. But no, God's not trying to keep a distance and figure out who's in and out and who's clean. No, 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 that's not the gospel. The gospel is that God so loved the world that God put skin on and came right into our world so that he could love us back into wholeness. And it reveals God's love for the whole world. You matter to God. And if your religion keeps you from loving those who matter to God, there is a good chance that you need a new religion, <laughs> right? I mean, right? I mean, Anne Lamott says that. If your God hates everybody that you hate, chances are you need a new God, right? I mean, God comes. That love, that self-giving, agape love, that changes, that will change this world. That's what it is. But it's easier to settle for which way do you cross yourself on which hand or whatever, right? We are rooted in God's gracious generosity. Our life does not ultimately depend on being in control or being right. So if you blow it, if you don't know when to do this or when to do that, or you do it wrong, I have really, really good news for you. If you were perfect, you wouldn't need Jesus. So guess what? Welcome. <laughs> Welcome, you know, because we all miss the mark. We all blow. And it's not that. God loves you right where you are. It doesn't depend on getting it right. The primal business of our life is to yield and trust ourselves to the God who loves us more than we absolutely can love ourselves. And allowing that love to creep into those inner places inside us and change us from the inside out. Or to turn us right side up and shake the nonsense out of us, right? This is the kind of love. This is the way that heals us. And this is ultimately the way um, of life that transforms us. That we can actually then be, without trying to get on God's good side, but that love just comes through us. 
because we've been loved and touched and healed. And that love just comes through us. And we can literally be the loving, incarnational presence of God in the world. And that's it. Pete Scazzaro says, the author of Emotionally Healthy Discipleship says, we are to be the best lovers of people on the face of the earth. Now imagine, imagine if the church literally was known for the way we loved. I don't know how to do religion. Those people get it all backwards and forwards and wrong, but you know what? They are the best lovers on the face of the earth. Jesus seems to think that spiritual maturity is gauged by the manner in which we love. Isn't that amazing? Not how well we quote our Bibles or do liturgy or whatever, by the way that we love. You are loved with a love that you did not earn, and therefore you can never lose. This is the truth of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. Let that love rule your heart, your mind, your soul, and your life. And it will truly help make us all the best lovers on the face of the earth. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you liked today's message, please subscribe to our podcast and be sure to tell your friends. You may also check us out on YouTube at youtube.com backslash St. Michael's Orlando. Until next time, remember, God loves you with a love you did not earn, and therefore, you can never lose.